My name is Hannah Blair. I'm a sophomore at UGA, and I will be reading tonight. This is Ruth chapter 3. One day, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So wash and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and finished drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, Yes, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, for behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. So spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do so. But if he is not willing to redeem you, Then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Just lie down until the morning. So she lay down at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he told me you must not go back home empty-handed to your mother-in-law. To which Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This song is called God of Grace and God of Glory. Um, I think it will be unfamiliar for most of us, but The chorus really speaks to where we are right now. So listen along, sing along. Um, Here we go. God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour your power. Crown your ancient church's story. Bring its bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. For the facing of this hour. 
ghosts of evil around us Scorn the Christ to seal his ways From the fears that long have bound us Free our hearts to faith and praise Grant us wisdom Grant us courage for the living children's warring madness bend their pride to your control shame I want and selfish gladness rich in things and poor in soul grant us wisdom grant us courage lest we miss your kingdom's goal lest we Save us from weak resignation To the evils we deplore Let the gift of your salvation Be our glory evermore Grant us wisdom Grant us courage Serving you Serving you whom we adore Well, hey everyone. Glad that you're getting to join us as we continue our series through Shattered Saviors and Ruth chapter 3 in the passage that Hannah just read a moment ago. Normally I'd be saying thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, because normally we try to have these sermons posted for the UGA RUF community by Wednesdays at 8, so that something, just one thing at least in your life, doesn't have to change, can be regular and normal, and you can still have Wednesday nights uh, to gather, even digitally, uh, with your friends and worship and pray and hear God's Word. But one of the other marks of this new moment we're in is lots of technology, which means lots of technical difficulties, which in my case more often means user error. And we ran into a lot of problems last night trying to get the podcast correctly recorded and uploaded. And so we're going to take another shot at it, which is now Thursday morning. Now, if you hear birds and dogs barking or kids getting spanked in the background, that's because I'm out on my deck uh, having a nice cup of coffee and so... No, I'm not trying to get savvy with uh, sound effects, but yeah, you're getting the real experience here. Well, Ruth chapter 3, what we're going to be talking about uh, today in this passage is romance and redemption. Romance and redemption. Those are really our two points. Let me pray for us and I'll tell you a little bit more. Jesus, whether we are in the car right now, driving along or on a run with our earbuds in, or sitting at home with our Bibles open. Now would you come and be with us? Now would you come and teach us? Come and encourage our hearts. 
change somehow, somewhere our thoughts about you, grow them, deepen them, deepen our love for you as we see your love for us. And we should say thank you on the front end too. As we've just heard what Hannah read, we remember that you are our Redeemer. We have a Redeemer. We have one in you who loves us and is willing to bear our burdens. So now teach that to us. Get it into us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, romance, dating, attraction, these are things that bring us some of our best days and some of our worst days. They're the things that can fill our hearts with hope, and they're the things that have broken our hearts or risk breaking our hearts. But when you put two words together like romance and redemption, they're not things that we normally associate together, right? Dating and salvation. Have you ever thought about those two joined together? Or do they exist in separated fields, separated spheres in your mind that barely overlap? They're not things that we group together. Which is going to make this passage extra special for us. Because it's a passage, it's a place in our Bibles where God so tightly fuses romance and redemption together that they are almost indistinguishable from each other. How so? How are they fused together in the passage? How are they fused together in real life? How does your romantic life and God's redemptive work in your life actually overlap? Well, it's fascinating to see in this passage that God is actually bringing redemption to the world, even to you, through the romantic lives of Ruth and Boaz. Let me put it bluntly. You wouldn't have a Redeemer. You wouldn't have Jesus as your Redeemer were it not for this romance between Ruth and Boaz. Because their relationship, we'll find out next week in chapter 4, it took off. And they got married and they had a baby who had a baby who had a baby who had a baby who had Jesus. Who lived on your behalf. Who loved on your behalf. Who bore your burdens. Who died for you on the cross and rose for you in indestructible life. That's how romance and redemption are fused together. God's redemptive plan, his rescue plan, the, the express lane of his rescue plan went right through the lives of a poor foreigner woman named Ruth and a rich, influential, godly man named Boaz. And it's amazing. And I think uh, we don't normally associate romance and redemption. I get it. Those are two separate spheres. And uh, 90% of the time when I hear people or I... Th- You know, when I was dating, when I thought about God's role in my romantic life or my dating life, essentially God is there as a dating guru, a helper. We bring him in when there's a problem and we want it to get fixed. Lord, help this to work out or or, or help me to grow in this. Help this to to move forward or, or let this person like me. We bring God in as a guru or we say things like, I want to keep God in the center of my relationship as if God is an object that we move around and put to the left or the right or the top or the bottom or the center. But this is a moment where you see 
Ruth and Boaz's their story is it's such it's that original metaphor we used for the book of Ruth. It is a thread in this redemptive tapestry. And what I want to show to you is even a place like their romantic lives were critical to what he was doing in them and through them, redeeming the world in Jesus. God looks at even your romantic life, even your dating experiences as sacred ground. And so you must start looking at those places of your life as sacred ground, holy ground, not a place of trivialities and a place that our only concern is pleasure and am I happy and do I like this and am I getting uh, kind of the romantic attention that I desire. But we want to see God shine the light on an area of our lives that we don't normally associate with the gospel, with redemption, with salvation, with growth, with the Spirit's work. And so this is a, like I said a second ago, just a beautiful picture, a living picture of that. So if God is at work even in our romantic lives and our lack of romantic lives, if redemptive history depends on these things and is happening in the midst of these places in our lives, then it means our romantic lives are serious business, right? And it means God actually does have a lot to say on it and a lot to show us. And it means that though this is a complicated part of our lives, it is a place that you should absolutely expect your God to be busy and at work. Now, a caveat. What if, what if you don't have a romantic life? What if you don't even feel, what if you're not even at a place where you really feel there's just not even really any interest in someone of the opposite sex or, or, or dating or getting married right now? Or what if you really, really, really want that, but it's just never come? All of your friends are the ones who get matched up, but you're never the person. What if your heart's just been broken? And this is a raw spot for you. Look, I want you to know something. I want you to remember Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 2 and Ruth chapter 3 and remember the context of these women's lives. God has been faithful and present and busy doing beautiful things in Ruth's life through every stage of Ruth's life. We've got to remember that Ruth was a single woman who didn't know if she'd ever get married. And then God provided a husband for her a decade before, Naomi's son. And then God was faithful and present and good to Ruth when that husband tragically died at a young age. And Ruth wasn't like an 80-year-old widow. Ruth was a 25-year-old widow. And God was faithful to her in that season of widowhood and loneliness and financial exposure and poverty and fear. And then God was faithful to Ruth when she moved far away from her home to Bethlehem in Israel and began a new life with her mother-in-law. And now she's back in a season of wondering, is there any hope for me? Is there anyone for me? Did I bury my hope for a husband, my hope for children, my hope for a future when I buried my first husband? And God was faithful to her in that season. And now God is faithful to her in the complexities and twists and turns and unknowns of this budding relationship with Boaz, which you and I know worked out, but she didn't know it was going to work out. It was risk for her. It was unknown for her. And the point, friends, is that God was faithful to her through it all through it all. That hymn that you might have grown up singing if you grew up in the church, 
Great is thy faithfulness comes to mind. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. That's what Ruth could have sung every day of her life, even on the days when it was through tears and heartache, and on the days when it was buoyant and joyful. And so, regardless of where you are or what your relationship status is or where your romance is, whether it's dead or alive or on life support or recovering from being wounded, oh, would you be able to sing this song, Great is your faithfulness, Lord unto me, morning by morning new mercies I see. Now, before we uh, look at a few of these insights about what godly romance might look like and then talk about how redemption is woven through that, Let's just do a quick sweep through the passage, maybe take a minute or two and just kind of look at it and say what's going on in the passage, and we'll circle back around then and really dial into a few of these insights about romance and redemption. So first, a sweep of the passage. What's going on here? Well, a little bit of background uh, in case you haven't listened to the first couple of sermons in this series. Ruth and Boaz by this point and Naomi know, uh, know each other, right? Um, chapter two and ch- chapter two talks about how Ruth and Naomi uh, came back to Bethlehem. They heard that the famine was over, and uh, in God's mercy, uh, Ruth just quote unquote accidentally ends up working working in the fields of Boaz, this rich, influential, well known, and well respected man in the community who happens to be again God was working in the shadows, even though they didn't know it. He just happens to be the family redeemer. And so she begins to work in his field and they meet and they talk and they have lunch and Boaz kind of takes her under his wing and he tells the other men of the field, don't touch her and protect her. And if anyone messes with her, they mess with me. And he took care of her and Naomi. He made sure they had food to eat and got a paycheck. And so they... It's important to know that this is not just kind of a love at first sight. You know, they see each other. They have this passionate speech in the middle of the night and just, just, you know, uh, everything starts unfolding from there. This was a gradually, slowly developing relationship or friendship, you could say. They weren't like buddy-buddy best friends. Boaz was a man of status. He was on the top rungs of, 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 of status in that day, and Ruth was on the bottom rung. They really couldn't get further apart, but... They had an interest in each other. Now, here's the problem. Because of that social distance between them, Boaz being a man and a landowner and rich and having family and having uh, wealth, and then Ruth being a foreigner, a peasant, a poor woman who has nothing, who's literally begging for food for her meals. She has no husband, no dad, no father-in-law, no nothing. Because of the distance there, their interaction, their presence with each other would have been extremely limited, especially because, especially any time alone with each other, Boaz would have had an entourage. He was an important guy. People are always coming to him, the foreman of his workers or his employees or elders in the town. And so there was a problem. Naomi, Naomi knows Boaz is really Ruth's only hope for a future, only hope for resurrection in her life, for a reset, for security, for a tomorrow. And so she's probably been working in the fields all these months, thinking and praying and scheming about a way to get 
Ruth and Boaz together so that she can kind of propose this idea, which ends up being really a marriage proposal. Will you redeem me? Will you marry me? Will you take me under the shelter of your wing, Boaz, that I might have a future? And so the only way that that could really happen in a way that protected both Ruth and Boaz is this scheme that you see described in the first part of chapter 3. There was a lot on the line with this plan, a lot of risk involved. And so Naomi thinks of a way to have this conversation that um, would protect Ruth if Boaz didn't have any interest in it, if he rejected her and said no. And in a way that protected Boaz, if in case there were other people who found out about this or heard about it, imagine the shame that could come come on Boaz. Imagine what everybody else would think if they saw a a well-dressed woman with perfume and makeup on in the middle of the night approaching a man of status like this. And so this plan gives great thought for how to protect Boaz and Ruth from any unnecessary heartbreak, any unnecessary damage or pain in their lives. And that's why she goes in the middle of the night. That's the only way they could get alone. And she says, you know, at the end of the barley harvest, uh, all the men gather at the threshing floor, and this is kind of man's work, so to speak, in that day and age, and they did, they, they manufactured the barley and the oat that had been gathered so that bread and other things could be made out of it. And it was very strenuous work, and so they'd kind of turn this into an all-day work day, and they'd have a few beers at the end of the day, have a big feast, and then they'd all sleep there, wake up the next day, and do it again. So Naomi says, Ruth, wait until after they've finished uh, finished threshing the oats that day. They've had their drinks. They've gone to sleep. Then go and look beautiful. Take a bath. Put your perfume on. Get in your nicest clothes. And uh, Ruth does this, and she goes and she uncovers his feet. Now, you might be thinking, well, is that some innuendo? She uncovered his feet? Likely not. Uh, I used to live in the desert. Some of you have camped out in Colorado or out west in desert climates, and you know that every night in the desert is a chilly, cold night. There's no humidity in the air. Nothing contains the heat. And so as soon as the sun goes down, it gets chilly. And so if you were trying to wake someone up subtly, you know, not like going and shaking them and say, get up, get up, but if you were going to try to wake them up subtly so that they wake up on their own, how would you do it? Well, you would uncover their feet. You would roll the blanket back over their feet so their feet get cold and the person eventually wakes up to move their blanket around and to get warm again. And so that's what Ruth does. Boaz does wake up around midnight and he sees a woman, a beautiful woman, well-dressed at his feet. And he says, who are you? And they end up having this conversation that gets pretty serious pretty fast. And it is to use a, a kind of a crude or anachronistic term here, I couldn't think of another, but they're basically having a DTR at this point, and Ruth is saying to Boaz, Boaz, who, who are you to me? And Boaz is saying, Ruth, who are you to me? And they're both answering that question. And she is saying, will you redeem me? I want you to be my redeemer. Take me under the shelter of your wings. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And Boaz is saying to Ruth, I will do that. If I'm able, I will do that. So we'll find out next week how some of these things play out. Uh, But 
we'll stop there for the moment and look at what are some of the insights or some of the light that this shines on godly romance. What does godly romance look like? Now, I know the application for a lot of you might be uh, in the realm of intentional friendships, uh, guy-girl relationships that, that you have that maybe you have an interest in the other person or maybe uh, in your dating life. So when I say godly romance, I'm going to have to trust your uh, intelligence to apply that to the situation that's appropriate in your life. But this passage says a lot. It shows us a lot about what wise romance looks like and how God works through it. So I'm going to move quickly here. And I'm a preacher, so for all you note-takers, eat this up. But all of these characteristics of godly romance start with a G. I did that just for you. Godly romance appears to be group-sourced. It's crowdsourced. Ruth had a problem and Naomi knew it, right? The problem was how do, how do we get these two, how do we overlap their lives in a way that they can have this conversation? But here's the point. Ruth knew Boaz. Boaz knew Ruth. Naomi knew Boaz. Boaz knew Naomi. This was not a Hail Mary pass. This was not a blind date. This was not a met someone at so-and-so and have to spend four months figuring out who they are. They knew each other. Those questions were answered, and critically, Ruth had the benefit of a spiritual mother like Naomi whose eyes were on this. And friends, the same is true for us. The safest soil for healthy romance to grow is inside of Christian community, where there are spiritual mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, friends of yours who can have eyes on not just you, but the guy or the girl too. There's a community that knows you, a community that doesn't just hold you accountable, but a community that keeps you honest Mm -hmm. and a community that raises the green flag. Oh, this is amazing. Dude, you got to do this. Take the chance. Ask her out or a yellow flag. I could see this working, but I think it might be wise to wait or to, 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 to figure out a few more things about this person, or the red flag. Hey, I know you're all about this guy, but we're concerned. You need to be dating in community. The safest soil for romance to grow in is, group, so, is a group-sourced um, soil of Christian community where the church has a voice into your relationships. I know this is not the way it always is. We're saying this is the ideal, of course, in our digitized, mobile, globalized world. Of course, God works through things like online dating and eHarmony and random setups, of course. But I'm saying the ideal, as far as you have control in the situation, where should you be looking for that guy or for that girl if you're looking for that person inside of Christian community? is the ideal place that search should be happening. Well, godly romance is also gradual romance. It's gradual. Wise love leaves room and leaves time and space for romance to grow organically and to bud. And it moves slowly. It appreciates the momentum that romance brings, the speed that it brings with it. And it it respects that. It honors that. And so it moves deliberately and and cautiously 
Now, I already mentioned this, but Ruth and Boaz knew each other. They had had a long period of time to observe each other. A lot of the questions had been answered. Is he a man of character? How, do, how does he respond when he's disappointed or when he's angry? How does he treat his lowly employees who have no status? And Boaz had heard mountains of evidence about Ruth. He said in chapter 2, I've heard from all the women in the town that you are a woman, a woman of noble character. They knew a lot about each other. Their romance was a gradually growing and developing ember inside of them. And they had time to observe each other and test each other's character. And I, here's a metaphor for you. I think godly romance, or, or, or you could say true love is like farming. And I think a fleshy romance, a superficial or ungodly romance is like apple picking. Now, Anna and I used to do a lot of, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but every now and then when she would come and visit me in Philadelphia when we were dating long distance, um, uh, we just needed stuff to do on Saturdays together, get out and enjoy, uh, enjoy the city together. And right around the city of Philadelphia, there's lots of apple orchards. And so we would go apple picking. And when we got into the parking lot there, you drive up, you pay your money, you get a basket. And you go gallivant through the orchard and you pick your apples and you go home and you make apple pie or whatever. But here's the thing. When we pulled up to that orchard, um, all we cared about was picking apples. Neither of us were wondering, now, which trees need to be pruned? And when do we need to put the fertilizer out? And what's the watering schedule? And uh, when, when should we expect the next harvest? No. All we were thinking about is, oh, there's an apple. I want to pick it and enjoy that apple. Well, there was a farmer somewhere on that property who had been invested since day one in that fruit growing. And he or she was the one who planted the seeds and pruned and watered and fertilized and treated and cultivated that fruit. Wise and godly romance is, is a romance that is patiently cultivated and grown over time. I think fleshy dating, modern ideas of dating and romance is apple picking. You just drive your car up, you show up, and you pick the fruits of somebody else's labor. You're not, you don't have a mentality of, how can I contribute to this person's growth? How can I spur them along and encourage them along? And how can I take responsibility for their life and for their growth? and for their maturation. We just have a sense of, oh, there's an apple. I want to enjoy that. I want to pick that. Superficial or fleshy romance is more like apple picking than farming. Ruth and Boaz's story is a story that shows us a patient cultivation of a friendship, of a relationship that grew more and more and more out of the realm of just friendship and more into the realm of romance. This, does, this gradual process doesn't mean that godly romance stalls out in a waiting pattern all the time and it just perpetually cultivates. No farmer wants to be farming forever. He or she wants to harvest in the harvest season. And so um, this godly romance has an eye for where it's going. It has a goal. And Ruth certainly had a goal. Naomi's plan had a goal. It was gutsy. It was gutsy. There was no safe way to go about it. And in our lives, too, there is no safe or risk-averse way to go about pursuing another person, whether it is a friend or a boy or a girl that you're interested in. There is no way to go about it that avoids putting a piece of your heart, a piece of your feelings on the line 
And this is where a lot of us get scared and perhaps are paralyzed in inaction is we want a risk-averse way, a way that is safe and doesn't put any of our skin on the line to ask somebody out or to pursue a relationship or to cultivate a friendship. And friends, if you want to avoid risk, you're going to have to avoid life itself because life is permeated with risk. But when you know how your God works, like we talked about last week, that he is present in the shadows, that his fingerprints are all over every detail of your life, it actually frees you to responsibly move forward, not in a flippant, foolish way. This was not a when I say godly romance is gutsy, I don't mean that uh, Ruth kind of went out and just flippantly said, well, here goes nothing. This was calculated. It, the costs were counted. It was uh, risks were mitigated. Her heart was protected. Boaz's interests, interests were protected, but it still required a lot of guts to go and do it. There was a lot on the line. What if he said no? What if people found out? What if she got shamed and run out of the community as being seen as a gold digger or whatever else? What if, uh, for Boaz's case, what if rumors started starting about why an older man was interested in a younger woman like this? There was a lot on the line. But godly romance uh, doesn't just feel like you're, you're walking above the ground with no problems. You feel the risk of it. You feel the insecurity, the vulnerability of it. But you talk to your people, you pray, you plan, you think, and you're free to move forward in those conditions. Well, godly romance is also guided. And this is perhaps the most important thing. It is guided. And, and what I mean by it is guided is it is it has a a bullseye, a goal that it is after, and both Boaz and Ruth's attractions were guided toward character. If romance is like a heat-seeking missile, well, then what's the heat? What should the heat be? Should it just be, he looks cute, or she's beautiful? Should it just be, I like his humor? She's smart? He has a lot of earning potential? Should it be her athleticism? She likes the same bands I do, or we both like to go up to the mountains and camp. Should that be the heat that that missile of romance seeks? Not for Ruth, not for Boaz. Not in Proverbs. Consistently throughout Scripture, the heat is defined as character. Character. I don't have time to go back through the entire book of Ruth and read all the places through this account that Boaz's character is described, that Ruth's character is described, but it's continual, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, permeated with references to their character, their nobility, their honor. Boaz said explicitly, Ruth, when, the, when they met, he said, I've heard about you. And you know, what, you know what attracted Boaz to Ruth more than anything else on the front end? Of course he noticed her beauty. It, the text says that. But do you know what caught his heart? and made him slow down and pay attention to her, the way she loved, the way she loved her mother-in-law. Now, look, I'm not just saying her and her mother-in-law had a tight relationship. This was a young woman, a beautiful woman with potential. She, she could, there were, I mean, she could have had a lot of guys lined up wanting to marry her, but, but Boaz was like, who is this beautiful young girl who has given up her future given up her life to take care of this old widower, widow. 
And he said, I've seen how you've cared for her, how you've laid down your life that her life might move forward. Oh, her character was so beautiful to Boaz. And don't you know that Naomi and Ruth had been so impressed and so blessed by Boaz's character, his generosity. He was always looking out for not just Ruth, not just trying to win her, but he was looking out for Naomi too. Before there was any romantic interest, he made sure there was enough to eat that, that, that Ruth went home with enough to eat for both her and Naomi. Boaz was a man who cared as much about Naomi as Ruth cared about Naomi. Oh, his character was beautiful to Ruth. Now, friends, if you're in a relationship, or I would say the ideal time to observe and look at character is before the relationship begins, right? These aren't questions. Of of course, you get to know people more and more as you're in a relationship with them. But if the first time that you're asking the character questions, what's in this guy's insides? What's in her insides? What's her heart like? If the first time you're paying attention to that is weeks or months into the relationship, could could I suggest a question that you should ask yourself? Where is my character? What is my integrity like? If character is such a secondary concern that I'm not even asking about it until weeks or months into a relationship. If I'm, if I'm asking, is this person a believer? Are they growing in the Lord? Are their roots gripping around Jesus and the gospel? Do they love the things of God? Do they love community? Do they care for people who, who can't do anything for them? If the first time you're asking about that is just kind of a distant secondary thought that pops up months into it. What does it say about your character and your need for God to grow you? We can't ask these questions months into a relationship for the first time because character is more like one of those old Scottish castles than it is like a sandcastle. If character is like a sandcastle, it can be built in five minutes. You can have a conversation, the person will change, they'll be better, and you're like, okay, good, now I don't have any concerns about where you are with God, or about your temper, or about how you don't really care for other people. I'm I'm glad we had the, the, the conversation, now we're all good. It doesn't happen that way. Character is like an old Scottish castle covered in moss, weathered by the by the weather. It takes years and years to build. Years and years to build. And it's not built overnight, but it is patiently, painstakingly constructed. And so if you're in a relationship and you have serious concerns about someone's character, it doesn't mean God can't change them. It doesn't mean they won't change. It just means change is going to come over years, not weeks and not months, because character isn't a sandcastle. It's a castle. Well, I want to say one last thing before we pivot and say how is redemption invaded romance, both in Ruth and Boaz's life, but in ours too. Godly romance is grounded to, it's anchored in something other than just pleasure and fun and having a good time with each other and being liked and liking. Godly romance is grounded in love for the other. And when I say love, I don't just mean the feelings of love, I mean the actions of love truly prioritizing the other person's interests, caring about them, even when it costs you. 
Godly romance is grounded in an unselfish love. And we see this. In, in Ruth and Boaz's love for one another is, is a love that prioritizes the good of the other, even at their own expense. Ruth is so careful not to cause unnecessary damage or complexity for Boaz. And so she does all this thing. She goes in the night. She uncovers his feet. She has a private conversation. She makes sure no one finds out about the conversation. She's clear about her intentions, not leading him on or playing games with him. And Boaz is very, uh, he prioritizes her good. He says, Ruth, I will redeem you myself, but first there's another man in the family who he's the first in line. He's the designated kinsman redeemer for you. And you and I can't just kind of be taken away by our emotions and, and me step up and be a redeemer because if I cut him in line, it's going to cause a world of hurt for you. It's going to cause a family feud. It's going to bring such shame upon you. And so first I need to go and have a conversation with him. And so he goes and he does that. And we'll see next week where that happens. But Boaz was willing, hear this, he was willing to let Ruth go if it would have left Ruth better off. Ruth was willing to let Boaz go if it would have left him better off. And we'd seen this in their character so many times before. Ruth was willing to let go of her life for the sake of Naomi's life. And Naomi with Ruth as well. I have a a couple that I'd gotten really close to in the years past and uh, I loved these people. They were friends of mine, and they were dating, and they were um, honest enough to let others peer into their relationship and tell us it was not a healthy relationship. Uh, they really struggled with um, just with sexual purity, with physical integrity, and you know the the relationship, the dating relationship, eventually got to the point where I was with them in a in a meeting and a conversation that the three of us had together, and uh, the guy said to the girl, uh, "You know what?" I love you more than I love hooking up with you. And I love a clean conscience with Jesus more than I love having sex with you. We've tried so many times to stop and to limit and to have accountability. It's just not worked. I can't, we can't control ourselves and we're not at a place to get married right now. And so we have to break up. And it tore their hearts out. But they broke up and she agreed. Each of them let the other go because their love for the other was so strong that they knew us together is destroying his soul. It's destroying her soul. Any opportunity for her to have a clean conscience and a soft heart before the Lord. So they let each other go. Now, this doesn't always happen, but that particular couple spent about a year apart and the Lord really worked in their heart. He straightened them out. He freed them from addictions and they got back together about a year, year and a half later, dated for a couple of months and got married. And it's a beautiful relationship now. But that's what I mean when I say godly romance is grounded in an unselfish love that prioritizes the other. And so we have both heard the story of Ruth and Boaz. We've talked about what insights can we glean about a godly, healthy romance But I want to circle back around as we begin to end this conversation and ask you, well, then what does redemption have to do with romance? Well, again, remember this story of attraction, this story of a budding romance between these two ends up being a critical piece 
in Jesus's family tree. You wouldn't have a redeemer if Ruth didn't have a redeemer in Boaz. And so this isn't just boy meets girl. What application does this have in your dating life? This is God pushing forward the story of your redemption and their redemption and the renewal of the world through this poor woman who has nothing and this rich man who has character and loves her. And so what can we see about redemption in this story? Not just romance, but redemption. Where do we see it and what is it like? Well, redemption is personal. Oh, this is so beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful when you see that redemption, the redemption that's described in the Bible, the way God saves is so personal. What God gave you, friends, what Christianity offers you is not a plan. It's not a spiritual program. It's a person. God ties up all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your yearnings, all of your needs. He ties it up in a person. All of Ruth's hopes and dreams and needs were tied up in a person. She was hopeless. She, she would essentially die if Boaz did not step up to be her redeemer. Everything was on the line. Her financial security, her social status, being able to have kids who would take care of her one day. All of it was tied up in this man, Boaz, and what he said when she asked him, will you redeem me? Friends, redemption is personal between you and Jesus. God does not give you a plan or a program or a platform of advice. He gives you Jesus, your redeemer. And this redemption we see it in Boaz and we see it in Boaz's great-grandson, Jesus. It's voluntary. Did you know that Boaz did not have to be her redeemer? He had an out. And even if he was first in line to be her kinsman redeemer, he didn't have to do it. Because we'll see in chapter 4, the man who was first in line, once he realized that Ruth was poor, that she had no status, that she was foreign, he said, no, no thanks, you can have her. Friends, Boaz willingly redeemed Ruth because he wanted to, because he desired her. Do you know that Jesus willingly redeems his people because he wants to, because he desires his people? Some of you might be saying, whoa, 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 Ben, you're saying that God wants me? There's nothing in me that would make God want me. That doesn't sound theologically true. And I'd say, oh, you have a half gospel and a half gospel is no gospel at all. You've only gotten half the story. You're right that there's nothing in us that would make God want us. But did you know that there's something in God that makes God want you? That makes him love his enemies? Don't you know there's something in him? that makes him want to redeem his character, his heart, his love. So you've got it all wrong when you get it half right. The gospel is that because of what is in Jesus, our redeemer, he wants to redeem. Because of what is in our God, he wants to love. And I wanna ask you, do you know that God wants you? Or do you think he's a duty bound, this is a business transaction and he really has no interest in you? Friends, what we have described in the Bible is something so radically different than a business transaction. The gospel is that in love, 
God wants to redeem. He wants to renew. He wants to invite and to welcome and to provide for your needs and to lift you out of poverty, to lift you out of slavery, to lift you out of death and out of guilt. Boaz lifted Ruth out of all of those things as Jesus lifts us out of those things too. And so friends, again, do you know that you have a Redeemer? Or if you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know of his love for you and your love for him, if he's not been reconciled to you, then the question still remains for you. Do you know that there is a Redeemer who wants to be with you? Who doesn't feel stuck or trapped in a relationship with you, but is in the relationship with you because he wanted to be? Do you know that he initiated love towards you and that now there is no fear for unreciprocated love, for unrequited love, or you being in it more than he's in it? Did you know that he's all in and that he's happy to be all in with you? Well, we also see, if you read a little bit between the lines, and if you read into chapter 4, that redemption is burdensome. It's burdensome. And the Redeemer is fully aware of the cost. Again, I'll leave this for next week, but uh, when a kinsman Redeemer was asked to step in and redeem the family member that was in dire straits, he would have been presented with all of the liabilities, all of the costs, the whole story of how down and out they were. And in chapter 4, when the first in line to redeem Ruth hears of it, he says, no thanks, because it is burdensome. When you redeem someone, all that is theirs becomes yours. All their debt, their poverty, their shame, their grief, all of it is now yours. It's a messy prospect to lift someone up, to take them under the shelter of your wing, which is what Ruth asks Boaz to do. Will you take me under the shelter of your wing? Will you redeem me? Will you lift my life out of the mire, out of death? Will you be the embodiment of resurrection for me? Is essentially what she is asking. And Boaz, when he says, as sure as the Lord lives, I will, I myself will redeem you. What he is saying is I myself will burden myself with your burdens. I will shoulder what you carry. Your pain will become my pain. Your debt will become my debt. Your poverty will become my poverty. Friends, redemption is messy. It is so burdensome to the Redeemer, but He is willing to step up and to be your Redeemer. There's that other hymn that you might have grown up singing, How Great, is, how great Thou Art. And I remember these words off the top of my head, but it goes like this. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, your burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Friends, we'll see this brought to full fruition next week when we pick up the story. But, but spend your week as we approach Easter dwelling on this, that Jesus has delivered his people from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom, his kingdom. In him we have redemption. 
And he says, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, it is in Jesus that you are redeemed through his blood. In Jesus, you have forgiveness of your sins. Your burdens are lifted in accordance with the riches of his mercy. Do you see throughout the Bible pictures of your willing redeemer who loves you, who wants his people, who desires his people, who willingly shoulders himself with all that bears you down? And my question to you, whether you're a Christian or not, is will you come to him? As you watch him from afar by reading the Bible, by hearing stories of him, by hearing your friends talk about him, by being reminded of him, as you see him from afar, as Ruth saw Boaz from afar, is it warming your heart? Is it drawing you nearer to him? Is it fanning that ember of love and desire and delight in him? And friends, if you know him, be reminded of what your Redeemer is like. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, our Redeemer, answer the prayers we have prayed in this, these few minutes together. We pray that you would open our eyes and warm our heart with love for you as we become more and more aware of your love for us and our redemption in you. Amen.